Amen. And so now we come to the proclamation of God's Word as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew. We are nearing the end of Matthew 17, as you'll find on page 7 of your worship folder, Matthew 17, 14 through 20. And this is the uh, last sermon we're going to have on Matthew for a few weeks. Um, our plan is entering into the Christmas season. Uh, uh, to go ahead and focus on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the way we're going to go about that is we're going to look at the four songs of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, they all point to this great story of redemption, of Christ coming down, being Emmanuel, God with us. And so I trust that will be a blessing as we focus on Christ becoming one of us. But let us first this morning look at Matthew 17. And uh, verses 14 through 20. We read these words. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and, and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And when the disciples came to Jesus privately, they said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We ask now that you would help us to see once again the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you would open our hearts, our minds, and through the power of your word, give us peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Change, it is such one of those words that is often tied to one's hope. Uh, People hope for things to change. I think we've probably been saying that all year culturally as a society. We hope things will get better, that they will be different. They want many things to change or to go back to the way they once were, to be different. And we hope for change in all sorts of things. Um, Some of them are trivial. We, We hope for the weather to change from rain to sun or winter to summer. Or if you're like me, to actually get to winter because I do enjoy the snow. Um, or perhaps a head coaching change at Michigan so that we can actually win big games. <laughs> we hope for trivial things. But we hope for change in big things as well. Sometimes those are personal Perhaps a destructive habit, a sinful habit that we want to escape from, that we want to be broken. Perhaps relief from sorrow. Perhaps a failed relationship that we want mended. We want things to change. And then there are those big, broad, world-moving changes that we long for. The end of suffering, curing cancer, war that turns to peace, evil that is overcome by good. In fact, the world 
as we look at it, both now and through history, is full of no shortage of personalities and policies and plans that promise to affect great change in the world and in people's lives. And it comes as no surprise that this is the case because many people know that we live in a deeply fallen, a deeply flawed and broken world. As our shorter catechism rightly states, our fall as humans into sin has made us so liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. And so we long for that to change. And it does change because of Jesus Christ. Matthew's gospel is the record of Jesus coming to this earth, born of a virgin, born under the law, who died, was raised the third day, all to begin this great change, this great reversal, as he brings his kingdom into this world. As he comes to change the state of our hearts and just change the state of the world. As he brings all under subjection to his compassionate kingship. But we know that that mission is not completed. It's not completed in the Gospel of Matthew. It is not completed today. It is started. It is here. But it is not yet fulfilled. We enjoy its blessings, we enjoy its benefits spiritually, but living under the corruption of sin, we also still experience pain and hurt and sorrow and evil. We long to be free from the effects of sin, even while we enjoy the fact that we are free from the condemnation of sin, because Christ has come. Our text this morning Hits us, in fa- hits us right in the face with that reality that, yes, Christ has come. Yes, his kingdom is here, but it is not complete. And we see it in this father's frantic cry for mercy. When we left Jesus last week, he was with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they were on top of the mountain where Jesus was transfigured before them. And they're given a little taste of his glory, a little taste of what the completed kingdom of Jesus Christ will look like. But now we are told here in Matthew, they come back down. They come down off the mountain. They come back down into the present situation of the world. And as they encounter the masses of people, they are immediately confronted with a very heartbreaking situation. Pushing his way through the people comes this man, a father of a son. And this man had watched his boy suffer for the boy's entire life. And he suffers both physically and, as we see later, spiritually. He experienced frequent seizures from which, as Matthew describes in our text, that he suffered terribly. In other words, this was something that didn't just happen occasionally. This happened all the time. It was a regular event in his life. The boy would lose all control of function and throw himself into danger. As the father explains, the boy would throw himself into fire or water. Uh, Open fires were very common in society there at this time when Jesus was upon the earth in his earthly ministry. 
Uh, they would either be located indoors in some sort of indoor kitchen or outdoors. They were a source of heat. They were used to cook food. They were all over. And this boy would throw aside the normal inhibitions and he would run towards that danger and throw himself into the hot coals. If it wasn't fire, it was water. And we aren't told what kind of body of water that he would seek out and throw himself into and attempt to drown himself. It, It could have been a lake, a river. It could have been one of the many wells that dotted the region because wells were needed to live. In the harsh climates of the area, they contain that life-giving substance of water. But for this boy, they weren't a source of life. They were a fountain of potential death. And put yourself in this father's place now. This is his boy. This is his child. This is the one whom he loves. And he's been dealing with this the entire life of the child. We don't know how long, uh, how old he was. Um, it's not clear. He, it seems that he's probably old enough at least to know better is, is the sense that we get from the, the text and the language that Matthew uses. But imagine living like this. Imagine what it would be to have a, set, a child who has no sense of danger. Now, I know everyone that's been a parent or is a parent says, <laughs> yeah, that's every toddler. But this is different. This is a child that tries to destroy his life every chance he can. But the awful truth is that so many people are like this father. So many parents have been in the same situation. It's one thing to see yourself suffer, but to watch your child suffer, to watch the ones that you are supposed to to parent and protect and care for, to experience pain and danger that you cannot control, that is crushing, that is wearisome. And how this father has gone on is remarkable. And so he does the only thing that he knows that he can do. He, he falls on his knees before Jesus and he pleads for mercy. Desperate times call for desperate mercy. Now, many of us understand that on a very personal level, we, we have felt the pain of watching someone like our children suffer, be it physically, spiritually, or emotionally. I wonder what the father has done up to this point, until he does finally come to Jesus and throw himself before him, begging for mercy. Has he gone to all the doctors of the day, trying to find some cure, some remedy, only to be disillusioned? Has he consulted with the priests, the rabbis, the Pharisees, trying to find help? What kind of remedies was he willing to grasp for in search of some relief for his boy, some kind of healing? See, this father's story could be anyone's story. On the broader human scale, we, as part of this world, understand, just like this father does, that something has to change. Things have to get better. It cannot go on like this. And so many are like this father, crying out for mercy from a heart of desperation. Unfortunately, though, what so many people do even in that cry, is they turn to everything else but the true mercy that they need. 
And when that happens, when we do that, we complicate the sorrow by adding sorrow upon sorrow. I mean, think about it. Why is the stereotype that people will turn to destructive behaviors such as drinking in excess or abusing drugs or addictive sexual behaviors when they experience some sort of trauma in their lives? Well, they do it because as humans, they're trying to escape the pain somehow, but they're looking for the wrong mercy. And why is it that people look to all sorts of programs and policies and ideas and philosophies in an effort to make this world a better place, to change it, to transform it into something better? When we want to change it, we look for change, but we look for it so often in the wrong places. I mean, no amount of purposed politics or moral reforms can achieve the change the world ultimately needs. What the world needs is the change that Jesus brings. And the disciples learned this in a very humiliating way. So from this father's frantic plea for mercy, we come now to the frustrated failure of Jesus' own disciples. Now, in the absence of Jesus, who, as you remember, he was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John... This desperate father, he goes to Christ's disciples. And this is his last resort. Nothing else would help. Perhaps these men could. Jesus isn't here, but these are his disciples. I mean, after all, Jesus had given them authority to actually heal, to cast out demons. Back in Matthew chapter 10, uh, that's where we see Jesus sending out his disciples to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And a key part of that mission was to confirm the truth of the kingdom's arrival through the miraculous power of the king. And so we read in Matthew 10 and verse 1, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And we know from the other gospel writers that when Jesus sends out his little band of disciples, they at least had some measure of success. They actually did these things in Christ's name. We read in Luke 9, 6 that after Jesus sends them out, uh, they departed. They went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They were doing what their master had done through his power as he sends them out. But in this case, with this desperate father looking on, the disciples fail miserably. They pray for the boy. They try to drive away the demon and they cannot heal him. They cannot help him. They tried, but they could not. I mean, their hearts are touched, no doubt, by the plea for mercy. They feel the need that is there. They tried to do what they could, but they couldn't heal him. They just stood there, helpless, dumbfounded, with the helpless father. I mean, the helpless cannot help others who are helpless and expect success. The disciples asked Jesus privately then, after Jesus does heal the boy, which we'll see in a moment. But they ask him privately, why couldn't we cast out the demon? What what did we do wrong here? Why couldn't we help? Why couldn't we change this situation and heal the boy? 
Don't we have the ability to heal the world, to transform this place into the glorious kingdom of heaven? Didn't you task us, Jesus, with that mission? And Jesus replies to them in verse 20, well, it's because of your little faith. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says, you have little faith? Well, we need to ask that question, especially in the light of what Jesus says immediately after regarding faith the size of a mustard seed, which mustard seeds are little. So what does he mean? I mean, it almost seems contradictory here. Well, in verse 17, Jesus offers this scathing rebuke. Jesus answers, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you, and how long am I to bear with you? The generation that Jesus specifically has in view, of course, is the immediate generation, but it goes beyond these frustrated disciples and the onlooking crowd and the helpless father. In fact, his words echo back in time in the history of redemption all the way back to Moses. In Deuteronomy 32, God through Moses is speaking to his people through what we call the song or the psalm of Moses. And there we read these words, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is here, is he. And these words he is speaking, of course, of the Christ, the true rock of his people in whom they could hide and find rest. But Moses continues and he begins to speak of the people. And this is what he says regarding the people. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. That sounds familiar because it is. It is what Jesus is speaking of here. A crooked, twisted generation, curved, bent, distorted, or unbelieving and twisted as Jesus says here in Matthew 17. In other words, the faith that they, these disciples did have was confused. It was bent. It was distorted. It was broken faith. And broken faith could not heal the boy. It couldn't bring hope. It couldn't transform the world. Just as Moses' generation was, so was Jesus' generation, and so is every generation of people in this world. In fact, Christ's condemning words, they could be spoken to every generation, even our own, as an unbelieving and twisted generation, a generation of broken faith. And so what Jesus means by little faith is faith that is twisted in such a way that we want to get the right results, but we do it through the wrong means. We want the kingdom of heaven, but we don't want to get there the way God has prescribed for us to get there. We want peace on earth. We want joy to reign, but we try to find it through the wrong means. Faith has been twisted. Again, going back to Moses, this is exactly what we see happening amongst God's people, God's church in the Old Testament. In Exodus 32, 
is where we read the tragic narrative of the golden calf. And I assume most of us are familiar with that story. How while Moses is up on the mountain receiving God's law, his, his testimony of his covenant love towards them, what are they busy doing? They're busy trying to get what they need, that covenant love, that covenant fellowship with God, but they go about it through the wrong means. Instead of waiting on God, they took matters into their own hands. They, they take of their wealth, their gold, their jewelry, good gifts God had given them when he delivered them out of slavery from Egypt, and they craft it into an idol of gold, an image of a calf. And they worship that gold image, that calf, claiming that this is the God that has brought them forth out of Egypt. They were trying to enjoy the presence of God in a manner not prescribed by God. They had twisted their faith. Now fast forward to this event in our text this morning. The disciples could not heal the boy because they had twisted their faith. They had uh, been sent forth to proclaim the kingdom, to get this wonderful result, and to confirm it through the mighty works of God. But it was to be the mighty work of God, not the mighty work of Peter, James, John, Matthew, Andrew, Bartholomew, Philip, Thomas. Instead of resting upon the one who truly could heal the boy... They were trusting in their own ability to heal him. They were, their faith was in faith itself, but that couldn't heal him. He needed Christ. He needed Jesus. And so no wonder they failed. And yet we see generation after generation of even Christians, even believers who are trying to do the right thing, but through the wrong means. We want to transform the world. We want to see things get better. But we forget it's not our world to transform. It is Christ's. And that's exactly what he does. Despite the failure of faith, despite the inability of his disciples both then and now to help heal and change, and despite this desperate situation, the Father, Jesus steps in and he builds his kingdom. And so from these frustrated disciples who have failed, we come to the faithful Savior who promises victory. See, the gospel isn't like anything else that promises to change this world, because the gospel actually does change it in the way that God has prescribed. And it does it in a way that we often do not expect. It turns everything upside down. You see, the gospel doesn't say, try harder, do more, just be a better person. But it says, surrender more, confess more, acknowledge that you can't do it You need the grace of God. The gospel doesn't say take hold of the situation. Rather, it says let it go. The gospel doesn't say fight to survive, but rather die to yourself. The gospel says look to the only person who truly can transform the world when all else fails. After the disciples have failed, in this case, to heal the boy, and after the father is left there on his knees begging for someone to help, some mercy, Jesus says this, he says, Bring the boy to me. Bring him here to me. You see, it isn't our faith that is going to bring the healing the world needs. It is Jesus Christ who brings that healing to those who are brought 
to Him. It was never meant to be our faith that saves the world. Instead, it's the the object of our faith. That object is Jesus Christ alone. That's the means by which His kingdom comes. That's how mountains are moved. And so Jesus rebukes the demon. And as always happens, it, it leaves the child Luke doesn't give us a lot of, or Matthew rather, doesn't give us a lot of details. But we understand what is happening. This is the compassion of Christ. In fact, it's his compassion that we even see in those words of rebuke. I mean, look again at verse 17. When he says, O faithless and twisted generation, he asks a couple questions. He says, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. How long am I to bear with you? How long am I to be with you, asked Jesus. These are words of lament. They give us a picture into his heart, a heart that sorrows for a sorrowful world. And they certainly communicate his coming death on the cross. He knows that he will soon leave the world He's been revealing the details of that as we have observed, how he will go to the cross to bear the sins of his people. And that alone is a cause to cry out and lament. But Jesus also sorrows for the people of this world, particularly the lack of faith in his disciples, faith that they desperately need, faith that really does bring hope and healing. And yet, he's so patient. How long shall I bear with you? Those are not words of frustration. Because he answers it immediately by saying, Bring the boy to me. I am bearing with you. I understand you have failed, but I will not fail. So bring him to me. And he heals the boy. He fulfills the promise to save, the promise of victory. He moves mountains to make his kingdom a reality. And that healing then is followed immediately by his careful words of instruction. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Now, this seems a bit confusing, considering he had just rebuked his disciples for having little faith. I mean, isn't a mustard seed little? Yes, it's, it's a very small seed. Well, here's the thing about faith. It isn't the quantity of it that makes the difference. You can't measure faith in quantity. Rather, you measure it by its object. That thing in which faith is placed. That thing in which we are trusting and resting in. And that thing is the person of Christ. As we already noted, a little faith was a twisted faith, a faith in the wrong thing. Of course it couldn't heal the boy. Of course it couldn't move mountains. But faith in Jesus, faith in the right thing, in the right person, even if it's the size of one of the smallest of seeds, can do the unthinkable. It can and it does change the world. Now, 
A word of clarification is in order here because some Christians uh, throughout church history have taken Jesus' words, hear about faith, and they actually twist them to mean something other than what he intended. Jesus isn't saying that you can literally go to any mountain and say, move from there and it's going to move. You're just going to get laughed at if you do that. It's not going to happen. That's not what he's saying. This isn't some sort of prosperity gospel that if you simply name what you want and believe it's going to happen with enough faith, it's guaranteed to be happening. I mean, faith isn't this magic formula that if you wave your wand in just the right way, you can make cancer go away or a financial need be met or a relationship to be mended. In fact, so many Christians have been hurt by that kind of teaching. Well, if you just prayed with enough faith, you'd be healed. And certainly you should pray for healing. You should pray for help. But we cannot divine the mind of God. We don't understand how He is working. But what we do know, He is healing. He is doing something. It may not be in the way we expect, but He is still bringing about his good and intended results. But if we treat faith as if it is this magic word that we just can speak and things will be better, we are twisting it into something it is not. Faith in Christ is different. It's simple. It's like a small little Seed. It's faith like Peter's confession back in Matthew 16. Faith that says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that rightly confesses who Jesus is and what Jesus does. You are the one that can take us from the kingdom of darkness and into your kingdom of light. You are the one who can drive away all evil and forgive every sin and melt hardened hearts and restore all things. That kind of faith, it's, it's not perfect. It isn't even large at times or great. Sometimes it's faith that has to fight through tears. Sometimes it's faith that's insult, uh, assaulted by discouragement and doubts. Sometimes it's faith that is barely holding on to the person of Christ. But as we see so often in the Gospels, just a touch of His garment is enough to heal. Because the object of our faith that makes it effectual is Jesus Christ. He is the one that moves the mountains and brings us into his kingdom. And think about mountain moving. What The picture that you get there is a landscape that is just dramatically changing. It's rewriting the very topography of the land transforming it into something that it was not before, which is precisely what Jesus does. I mean, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1. Speaking of Christ, he says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred or moved us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's... The mountains we need moved. That's the transformation the world needs. Moving us or transferring us from the dominion of darkness, the dominion of sin, Satan, and death, to the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom is our redemption. 
In fact, Jesus himself communicates this very same truth in the Gospel of John when he says these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed or moved from death to life. The language that Jesus used there in John to describe this passing from death into life is the very same language he uses when he speaks about faith moving mountains. So true faith does move mountains. And the mountains it moves are far more imposing than the Appalachians or the Himalayas or the Rockies. True faith can move the mountain of death and change it into life. True faith moves the mountain of sin that stands against you and it pushes it aside into the ocean of God's grace, never to be seen again. True faith cuts out the mountain of your corrupted heart and replaces it with a new, purified heart that can glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the amazing thing is about all that is it doesn't take a mountain-sized amount of faith to move those mountains. It's just a little bit. Faith the size of a mustard seed. And so when you struggle to believe, when your heart is that battleground of both doubt, unbelief, and trust in Christ, keep trusting Christ. Keep looking to Him. Hold on to that little seed of faith because it will move the mountains. Jesus will save. And when you, as a believer, fail just as these disciples did and you twist your faith and you begin to put your confidence, your trust in other things, be it your own strength, your own ability to affect the change the world needs... Remember, it is only Jesus that can truly make the difference in this hurting world. He is the only one that can transform it into his kingdom. And so when our faith fails, Christ's faithfulness prevails to fulfill all God's promises. His promise to redeem all things back to himself still stands despite our struggles, for it is not contingent upon the success of our faith, but on the success or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which was marked for us by an empty tomb. And so rest. Keep believing. Keep holding on to that mustard seed. And know that through that little faith, the impossible is becoming possible. The kingdom of Christ is breaking into this world and it is growing. And one day, when our faith is made sight and Christ returns and reigns for all eternity, we will see those mountains completely pushed aside as we look to the mountain who is Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and for how it speaks to us. Father, we are such fragile creatures. We struggle to believe the things you have given us. We allow our minds to be clouded by doubts and discouragements. And so we cry out, Lord, help our unbelief. 
Help us in our struggles. And we know that even through that small mustard seed of faith, you are doing the impossible both in our lives, for you are leveling even sin to make way for us to know you. And you are at work not just in our lives, but in this entire world, from Michigan to Manhattan, from Australia to Argentina, from China to Cambodia, on every corner, you are building your kingdom. And so we pray for our King to come quickly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.